Hello and welcome back again to the Sports Biomechanics Lecture Series, as always supported by the International Society of Biomechanics in Sports and sponsored by Vicon. I'm Stuart McCurlane Naylor from the University of Suffolk and with me today I'm very grateful to be joined by Professor JB Moran who is at the University of Côte d'Azur in France and probably slightly cheeky on my behalf JB was actually due to present a keynote at the ISBS conference this summer um, and with that being cancelled he's agreed to do a very similar talk um, for all of us to benefit from um, through this series so I'm really grateful to that and if anyone has any questions as it's going on if you use the live chat function on YouTube then we'll go through those questions at the end and discuss some more with JB after the talk. But yeah, thank you very much for joining us, JB, and I'll hand over to you and allow you to tell us a little bit more. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stuart, for the, the introduction. And uh, yes, that's basically partly what I wanted to present at the ISBS conference in Liverpool, should times be normal. So yeah, uh, we're going to cover these kind of topics. So we are going to cover the topic of force assessment in sprinting. Um, just for people who want to have more information about uh, our work, current and, and, and projects, you can log and connect to my website to have some more um, information. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through past, present and future uh, around that topic. And I'm also going to try and discuss the balance between lab and field assessment, because I think one of the one of the missions of biomechanics today is to bring knowledge and it's also to transfer knowledge to applications. And uh, this is important to discuss both. So uh, the first thing people need to realize is that, and that's something that we covered on a, on a review a few years ago, basically trying to measure any type of force, muscle force, uh, ground force in sprinting is almost impossible currently. So one reason is that, as you can see in this video, people move at more than 10 meters per second. So measuring things in these conditions is almost impossible. So the idea is that we are going to, the challenge is, we are going to get as close as possible to something that's currently impossible. So by definition, nothing will be perfect in, in everything I will present after that. So um, yeah, what the force? Uh, basically today, uh, you have many, many, many different levels, many different um, uh, scales of force. You can consider isolated muscle fibers or isolated muscles force, that's in vitro measurements. If you go to humans, uh, living people, uh, you can consider muscle groups, single joint forces, like you have in isokinetic testing or single joint testing. If you want to get closer to the actual sports movements, you can get some force measured during isolated exercises, such as jumping or sprinting. And of course, the dream uh, everybody has is to be able to measure force in these different scales uh, during real life uh, movements, such as football movements. And what we need to realize is that basically here on the left, isolated muscle fiber force is very interesting, but it's relatively irrelevant for sports and sprinting 
you know, performance analysis because it's not fibers that sprint, okay? So the information is very important, but it's not relevant to the sport context. And the in-game outputs are currently impossible to measure. So, you know, we are between two things that are uh, not really appropriate. And so we rely on some measurements of single joint or uh, single tasks. And basically these are very different informations. Uh, they don't correlate well in trained people. So it clearly means that they are different outputs because of velocity, geometry, coordination, many, many different uh, reasons because of single versus multi-joint movement and because of non-specific or sprint specific uh, um, contexts. So basically here, um, one thing that biomechanics has to um, uh, cover these limitations is inverse dynamics and modeling. And so I've listed in this slide uh, some studies that I find very interesting in that, in that um, context, modeling the muscle force so that we can think about what's happening in sprinting. So there's been a lot of very good works uh, by uh, Trumanov, Dorn, Fiorentino, for example, uh, Ken Clark and other people. One of the papers I really liked uh, in the recent times was the paper by Anthony Shashi and, and co-workers last year in the Journal of Experimental Biology. And so basically here, yes, we have some force estimates during sprinting, all right? But the big problem here is that these models are absolutely insightful. They bring information, but they are simulations that are based on postulates that come with assumptions, simplifications as any model, and that are most often made in steady state running context where sprinting is a changing movement. So I understand that these models are all very insightful, but my point is we should target more real life experiments and real life measurements. But it's almost impossible. And so maybe the future is direct measurements within the body of players, of athletes. And in my opinion, a very important step has been published um, two years ago now in Nature by this uh, US team uh, led by Daryl Fallon, where they were able to estimate the tension within a tendon, which is indirectly connected to the muscle's force by using ultrasound and vibration. To summarize quickly this study, they were able to connect the vibration speed uh, wave, wave speed to the tension in the tendon. And because there is a proportion between the two that was validated first in Achilles tendon and first in animal's tendon, but then live during walking and running gates, you can estimate the tendon tension uh, so the muscle force output uh, indirectly in running. And you see here this picture where there's a little sensor that's facing the biceps femoris tendon and that delivers an ID of the tension in that muscle group, even at high speed running. So maybe that's the future of force measurement in sprinting. But for now, if we go back to the basics, the only thing that we can measure in sprinting is the force output of the system 
that's applied onto the supporting ground. So basically, the model of sprint performance a few, until a few years ago was a model based on kinematics that said running speed is the product of step length by step frequency, which is correct. But the problem with this model, and this has been very well discussed by Aki Salo in his uh, ECSS presentation last year. I advise that you watch this again. The problem is that this model is correct, but it does not relate to the causes of movement. It's step length is not the cause of movement and step frequency is not the cause of movement. And as we know in the Newtonian dynamics context, forces are the cause of movement. So I like this sentence that says, it's not because we can measure step length and step frequency correctly and accurately that they are what counts. What really counts is the force that sprinters apply to the ground to move uh, and to move fast. So the model that we propose and the model that we follow is uh, this model, practical application of uh, sprint acceleration and top speed. To run fast, you need your body to produce force. So yes, that's the muscles. They produce force. This force is then transmitted to the supporting ground and you move as an effect of the ground reaction force on your mass that is propelling you forward, okay? So of course, you can then plug a context here, a list of uh, things that's super high velocity, very short contact time. Depending on the sport, you can bring some specifics because sprinting on the track is not sprinting on a football pitch, okay? And of course, you need to think about the entire spectrum of velocity from acceleration to top speed. So the, in my opinion, the key variable is muscle force that turn into ground reaction force that turns into impulse and acceleration. So that's the kinetics, ground reaction force analysis. And for the kinematics, the movement of the segments, you can rely on typical motion analysis uh, here. So for example, um, accelerating in sprinting means applying force to the ground and the resultant force will drive the center of mass in a given direction. And what many uh, different research teams have shown is that not only the magnitude of force is important, but also the direction of that force. And I think what we call technique in many sports is in fact, orientation of the force output. Okay, my shooting technique in basketball, um, uh, the way I hit the ball in tennis, a lot of that is orienting my force output. If I orient my force output the good way or the wrong way in basketball, I will miss the shot or I will have that shot. So in that study in 2011, we showed that basically, yes, the magnitude of force output was important, but to accelerate well, you needed that force to be oriented correctly. So the component of the force that drives your center of mass forward was important. And it's funny because if the, the law of motion of Newton was tweeted, like, you know, 400 years ago or 500 years ago, Newton would have done two tweets because it's too short to do it in, in one single tweet. And so he would have started his tweets like this. The alteration of motion is proportional to the motive force impressed. So people say, okay, if you want to accelerate a lot your body, you need a lot of force to drive your body mass, fine. But there was a second tweet, 
and and it's like today's tweets nobody reads the second tweet you know so the second tweet would have been the acceleration is made in the direction of the right line in which the sum of the forces is impressed and this means yes you will accelerate a lot if you push a lot but in the direction of the push and the second term is key because basically as you understand if your push is not oriented towards your goal then you don't accelerate a lot towards your goal your goal so now let's go to the methods uh, this is a, a quick summary of the the model produce and transmit and the body of a sprinter has the machinery that produces force but it has also the entire transmission machinery and you need to understand that performance is having all the pieces working efficiently, not only the producing force uh, pieces. So how can we do? So I'm gonna go through history because the first attempts to quantify the ground reaction force were uh, made by um, pioneers in our field by mechanics. And one of them was French, uh, Etienne Jules Marais. And if you check his, his book, The Movement, Le Mouvement, uh, that summarizes all his research on you know, chronophotography and all that stuff, you see that here, it was measuring pressure, um, uh, dynamic force with pneumatic systems. So that was only air, paper, and ink. And basically here you have an illustration of a jump that's made. And the first observation of jump force or pressure traces and analyses were made here. Uh, it was before uh, the years uh, 1900. And so today we use AIR and MATLABs, but the principles are exactly the same. So this was the first measurement. And um, if sometime you go to the northeast of France, close to a city named Dijon, there's the museum of uh, Etienne Jules Marais, and you will see some incredible uh, tools that he used for movement analysis. And there's also some very good wine around. So that's two good reasons to visit. The name of the city is Bonn. So we are going to skip uh, many things and go to 1971, where uh, Giovanni Cavagna, who is another pioneer in biomechanics, published this paper. So Cavagna is based in Milano, in Italy. Um, and they published in 71 this paper that's uh, the mechanics of sprint running. And what they did at that time was very um, uh, novel. They used a track with force plates embedded. You see here, so the four force plates of 0.5 meters. And they asked the runners to sprint, really accelerate. And they collected several sprint data so they could virtually reconstruct a full sprint analysis. And it's very interesting to see that the way they calculated the force exerted by the foot on the platform in the direction of the run, this is the key, was following Newton's equations of motion. Very important, very simple. Mass times acceleration plus the friction forces. By the way, this was published in the Journal of Physiology. And this is very interesting because I don't know what happened since 71, but today we tend to split what's biomechanics and what's physiology, which is in my opinion stupid because we all study how the, how the body functions, how the body works. And it's very fun to see that sprint mechanics paper published in the Journal of Physiology, you know? So um, a few years after, 
uh, with my colleagues in Paris at the National Institute of Sports um, in a study led by Giuseppe Rabita, we did exactly the same. So at the INSEP in Paris, they have seven meters of in-series force plates, as you can see here. It looks like gold, you know, boom, 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 boom. Each of them is a Kistler force plate and they were connected into the track so we could assess ground reaction forces during sprinting from acceleration to maximum speed. And so here we did exactly what Cavania did. We asked the sprinters, and because they were elite, they were very reproducible. We asked them to do several sprints because we cannot move the uh, force plates, of course. So we moved the starting blocks and we could virtually add the data to reconstruct a single sprint. And so this was done by the engineer at the INSEP. And you can see here from the starting blocks on the left to maximum speed on the right, you have almost every single step, not of a single sprint, but of the same sprinter. And we could here confirm many of the results that we obtained uh, differently. And the most recent update to that uh, force plate technology research was uh, built in Japan in the lab of Ryu Nagahara, who is um, a sprint uh, researcher. And they published in 2017, the first study of a long series of studies where they use a 50 meter force plate system. And uh, when you read the paper, it's fun because they say it was just 50 force plates installed in series. When you know the connection, the data processing that's behind, you, you understand it's a, it's a huge work. But what you see here is exactly the force trace I showed you before, except that here it's one single acceleration. So you can see here when the sprinter crosses the finish line, they come back to the start line and the data are already processed and ready to um, analyze with the coach. And this is key. And in my opinion, Ryu Nagahara basically killed the game with his, with his lab because what else can you do? You have force plates under every step, so you can just analyze everything, all right? But nobody has 2.5 or 3 million euros investment or something to build the lab. So instead of having athletes running over a long stretch, biomechanists invented ergometers to have them run in place so they could analyze their uh, mechanics. So this is what we call instrumented treadmills. And the first attempt I know of, uh, I mean, uh, serious modern devices was made in UK by uh, Henry Lacomi in 87. And basically the idea was to attach the sprinter for obvious reasons, otherwise they would, you know, <laughs> leave the lab. So you attach people by the waist and you measure both their running speed and the pulling force that they apply at the level of the center of mass. So of course, this was the first attempt. The data were not really sprint-like, but it was the first of a long series of improvements. So that's an historical ergometer, if, if, you, if you want. One improvement was made in France, in Saint-Étienne, in the, uh, my former laboratory. And basically, they added a motor to overcome the big friction and the big inertia of the system and to allow people reach some very fast running speeds. And they also uh, added an angle sensor so that we can get the real horizontal component of the push and not only 
the components in the in the direction of the of the attachment. So this gave this kind of traces. This was published in 2001. And funny enough, this is me running on that treadmill because I was one of the subjects during my master thesis almost 20 years ago. So that treadmill was measuring force and velocity, but it was not ground reaction force because there was no sensor on the ground. So that innovation was uh, made, uh, for example, in the US in the lab of Peter Wayand. And what you see here is an elite sprinter dropping themselves on the uh, treadmill. The speed here is 11.5 meters per second. So that's crazy fast. And that treadmill records ground reaction force, okay? Uh, and the, the very good thing is that we have ground reaction force and possibly kinematics because we can film what happened. But as you can see, it doesn't allow you to accelerate. It's only a top speed window of observation. And many, many sports require uh, acceleration. So it was a very big step forward, but still some limitations. But I think that's, that's, that's what science is. So in 2010, it's funny because the paper was published exactly 10 years ago uh, tomorrow. We published with the University of Saint-Étienne an update of a sprint instrumented treadmill that was allowing people to accelerate from zero. So you saw the beginning of the video was a standing start, a still start, up to top speed and back. So the key point in this treadmill is that it is mounted on uh, Kistler sensors, very accurate force uh, sensors, and the motor is exactly re reacting to the horizontal force output. Just in like in real life, when you accelerate horizontally, the speed increases and vice versa. So this is exactly how the motor reacts to the actions. And I'm gonna show it one last time. You see that when my colleague is going to decelerate because I say stop, he's going to put more braking impulse than there is pushing impulse. And so the motor is going to decelerate exactly like on the field. So this improvement allowed us to plug some EMG, to synchronize EMG with the forces, uh, to bring some uh, kinematics, 2D kinematics, and so on. So of course, it is treadmill running, but it allowed us to do some laboratory studies that we could never do on the field. And one more information you need to know is that when you compare the force output and the behavior there to what happens on the track, you find some very similar uh, output. So I think it's a, it's a good ergometer that's close to reality. So in summary, you can measure the ground reaction force. Uh, you just have to find a track with force plates. There's only a couple in the world or such an instrumented treadmill, there's only a couple in the world. And basically, you know that treadmills get you nowhere. It's a classic uh, gym rant. So it's a bit frustrating. So with a, a PhD student, Pierre Samosino, we asked that question, okay, can we try and get some data in field conditions with field devices as inputs instead of treadmills or uh, uh, force plates in the track. So we followed uh, an approach that we like. It's a macroscopic approach, trying to get good quality data from simple inputs. And this is a challenge, but this is something that uh, my mentor, 
Pietro Di Pramperl and, and uh, Robert Alexander, a famous uh, biomechanist of animal locomotion, used. Basically, um, Alexander, when they said in, in a very good paper about modeling and biomechanics, when the model is simple, then it's a very good first step to analyze. Of course, you can get things more complicated afterwards, but the first step should be as simple as possible so you can understand better uh, what's going on. So this study was published in uh, 16, 2016, and basically everything is computed from a basic observation. When humans sprint, uh, healthy humans giving their all-out efforts, the speed increases. No, that's not big news, but the increase in speed follows a pattern that's clearly exponential. And this is a, consist a constant observation that you do in, in um, track and field people, in football, rugby. I, I have thousands of tests where people follow that exponential increase. Uh, this is the world record of Usain Bolt. He goes from zero to top speed with that pattern. This is my boy. Uh, this is an old sprinter, 96 years old, goes to his top speed like this. And so from that observation, we just used very simple classical Newtonian dynamics to compute the horizontal acceleration or acceleration of the center of mass in the horizontal direction, and then estimate, just like Cavagna did, the associated force output. So the force output in the direction of motion. So let's go back in time. This ID was already out and already published by the works of Archibald Hill. So Archibald Hill is well known for a Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine, but he did crazy biomechanics studies, okay? Um, so in 27, they could measure the velocity output of sprinters, of human sprinters, human runners, and they already observed that, yes, there's an exponential increase. So it's crazy because it's very complex, and you can summarize that complexity into two variables that define an exponential function. So that's what they observed back in the, in the, in the 20s. And uh, this was published also a few years later. Uh, elite people also behave the same. The only thing that changes, of course, is the time constant of acceleration and the top speed. Okay, so uh, this is how it was described. And then over the years, it was systematically observed by other biomechanists so this is from a study from Russia, published in 79, where they attach a wire to the sprinters and they just check here. This, this graph is very cool. You see the time distance impulses. So they do exactly what Etienne Jules Marais was doing. They have something, a wire that's you know, stretched and they have one impulse every 0.2 seconds and they check the time distance relationship and then they compute the velocity distance relationship from that. So basically to summarize the method, we take the time velocity relationship, we calculate the horizontal component of the force output over time, over time from that, and we can calculate also the vertical component of the force because, because when humans run, the vertical component of the force over time is equal to body weight, okay? Because you never fly and you never go down on the ground. So on average, over several steps, the vertical component of the force output is equal to body weight. So from that, we could calculate 
all the mechanical outputs. And in 2019, we did another validation study, this time in Japan with the collaboration of Ryu Nagahara, where we show that basically, and you can see that here, when you compare the line, that's our simple model, to the values of the force plates here, you have what I just said, the horizontal force output for each step is really close to body weight, okay? Of course, you have interstep variability, that's normal, but the fitting is pretty cool. And the squares are the horizontal component of the force over the entire acceleration. So basically the ground reaction force output can be estimated very correctly from the simple speed or position um, velocity or position inputs. The black circles are the equivalent of power associated to the horizontal component of the force. So I'm gonna discuss that later. It's not the entire mechanical power output. It's the part of power that's associated with pushing your body forward in the horizontal direction. So in summary, the method requires very simple inputs, body mass, position, or velocity. It has a very good cost accuracy feasibility ratio. It means the systematic error is pretty low and the feasibility is very high. And all you need in practice is people to accelerate from zero to maximum speed, which is something very easy to uh, ask to uh, athletes, or it should. So the last part of my talk will be around practical applications in testing or training. So part of our research is done at the lab because we want to know more, but part of our research is done in the clubs, okay, with directly with players and athletes, and that's where we use these uh, methods. So very simply, because what you need as an input is position as a function of time, you can use high-speed cameras to film the movement, and today's iPhones and iPads have very high frame rates, 240 frames per second. If you take biomechanics of locomotion papers, and you list the frame rates of what people do, that's a good frame rate. Uh, that's basically what Etienne Jules Marais did uh, very long ago. His frame rate was 24. So we are 10 times more accurate today. And this led to the development, for example, of this iPhone application, that's MySprint. I have no relationship uh, with the development of this uh, application, except that they use our equations. And so basically, if you can film the motion, you can then point the position and you can derive the speed uh, time curve and calculate everything. So you can also do that with modern uh, speed sensors, for example, that 1080 machine, you attach the 1080 machine to the sprinter and you get their instantaneous speed that you fit with the exponential model. And we've developed a spreadsheet where you can enter the inputs and calculate the output. So that's very good for students and coaches to get into the biomechanical concepts with, I think, a very good level of accuracy. Um, to give you an example that's not even published yet or that's been accepted recently, some people in France and Finland adapted that method to ice hockey. So to my knowledge, there's no ice hockey uh, anywhere where you have ground reaction forces in ice hockey acceleration. So these guys, it's gonna be published in Sports Biomechanics uh, in a few days. Uh, these guys said, okay, let's film 
the movement of the player when they accelerate, and let's recalculate the horizontal force component. So of course, there's no validation possible, but it's based on something that's been validated. So this is how they do. So there's no iPhone in the place. So if people don't like iPhone science, they will not be pissed. So that's a GoPro camera. It's a high-speed camera. And basically, they film the player that's accelerating on the, on the ice, and they recalculate everything. And it's, I was very happy to see that paper out because the authors also provided a spreadsheet where you can recalculate exactly the placement of the markers to get the center of mass position, well, let's say the hips position, pretty accurately depending on where you film and how you film. So this is a very interesting practical application. So now, uh, another example, Usain Bolt. This is some, uh, we played with the data of Usain Bolt's speed during the world record to recalculate his force output. So what I want to stress here is that in Berlin, there was a very good speed measurement device, but there was no force plate under the, the feet of Usain Bolt. But our studies show that basically, if you had force plate that day, you would have calculated some mechanical outputs that are pretty close to what's on this uh, slide. So it means we get some information that's good level of validity and that's very, very insightful. So right now we are doing some studies where we try to see what training inputs develop what part of the force and velocity spectrum. So if you need more Force at the beginning of the sprint, what's gonna work to improve that, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So this is one of the applications towards sports training. So my last point would be limitations, of course. Everything I've presented so far has clear limitations. The works of Hill, the works of Maureen, the works of everybody. So I love this sentence that says that all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. So we need to accept the limitations because uh, we want this information. So one of the limitations of the uh, horizontal power, let's say, approach is that, yes, we don't quantify all the sources of power outputs that a sprinter generates. And this, uh, this is a great study that's been published last year by uh, Gaspari Pavey. Thanks to 35 video cameras, they were able to quantify all the sources of mechanical power in a sprinter. So that's the external power in the vertical and horizontal direction. And of course, the internal power and the intrastep power, because between two steps, your mechanical energy changes, and this is associated with power output. So basically they could collect the entire power output where our model only focuses on horizontal force associated power and neglects clearly the, as you can see here, because we fit the raw velocity changes with an exponential model, we miss some information because we are analyzing the body as something that smoothly rides to the ground, where in fact sprinting is a lot of push and breaks, okay? So it's very interesting because in that study, they quantify everything, and they show, for example, here that internal power is pretty high, external power is there. And so the total power output in sprinting is much higher than we analyze when we stick 
to that horizontal power analysis. So we have to keep in mind that when we analyze power like uh, Newton would do from the horizontal force output, we are not exactly quantifying everything. So here, very simply, this blue bar is the horizontal power only, whereas the total power output is much higher. But one thing I need to stress here is that even if we don't quantify everything, we don't know if what we don't quantify is important or not to sports performance. You see what I mean? And I love this sentence again. Not everything that we count actually counts for performance. You see what I mean? So, of course, horizontal power is only one part of the uh, entire power output. But in my opinion, that's a very important part to performance. And I, I made a funny video here just to express what I think. In this video, I have a lot of internal power because I do a lot of very intense movement with my segments. So the internal power is high. I also punch the ground a lot vertically. So my power associated to the vertical force is pretty high. And what's going on? My movement goes backwards. So it means I am counterproductive. So I generate a lot of power, but that power is not used to move my body forward. So what I want to summarize here is that, yes, even if you don't quantify everything, what's important is that you quantify what's associated to your body moving forward. And that's the horizontal uh, component of the ground reaction force. So key points, as you understand, force sprinting is a long journey. And there's been, I don't know, maybe 50, 100 people involved in building that knowledge step by step. There's still a long way to go because we are very far from getting to the actual, real, experimentally measured force output. So we use indirect estimations. And we can do some things on the field, but we have to be cautious because there are some methodological non-negotiables, okay? So the source of error comes from the methodology and we need to be careful. It's not because you have an iPhone and the app that you will do some accurate measurements. And we need to keep assumptions, limitations, and their consequences in mind. So I think it's okay if biomechanists and coaches do some force measurements, but it's important that they keep in mind um, what they are missing and their limitations. So that's my conclusion point. Thank you for uh, listening. Brilliant. Thanks, JB. That was awesome. Um, yeah, Thanks. I didn't expect to see a bomber, Homer Simpson, and tweets from Isaac Newton all in a biomechanics presentation. But yeah, really enjoyed that. So thank you, you. you need that, as a, otherwise students leave the room. <laughs> Well, I really enjoyed it. And I think I really liked the quotes as well. There's at least three quotes that I've written down there that I'll definitely be using in future. So thanks for that. Um, but yeah, just while I give everyone a chance to catch up with the live stream and leave any questions in the live chat, if you want for JB, just take a look at what's currently on screen. So the schedule for the next four weeks. And you can obviously go back and look at previous weeks as well because they'll all stay on YouTube. So if you enjoyed that, please share with whether it's colleagues, students or anyone else you think would benefit. Um, and as well, if you subscribe and click on the bell 
button then you should get notifications when more lectures are being scheduled as well um but yeah just first kind of question from me jb was just what advice really you could give to anybody wanting to start applying some of these ideas so if i work in a sport but i've never done the kind of force velocity profiling before what you'd recommend as a good starting point to read or watch or even just yeah how to go about getting started really yeah that's a that's a very good question um <clears throat> honestly my opinion is that if you, if you really start and and you're not from the field i'm not convinced that reading something um will be very helpful as a first step my advice as a first step is to connect with people like you know uh, local biomechanists or people and ask them if they agree to give you an hour to teach you the basics and 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 guide you to some reading you see what i mean so i know it's it's not easy to say that but i think every professor every lecturer in biomechanics should accept to find one hour or two sometimes you know to 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 connect with people to discuss on the phone or or anything because if you just send people papers and there's a gap between what they what they can read and what's in the paper and they're going to say okay that's too complicated for me where in fact in fact maybe it's not it's just a way uh, you just have to take them there so uh, that's my advice connect with people and try and see some courses try and see some online stuff there's so much online uh, good stuff um, that's uh, i would start there and then of course you can read some papers uh, simplifying assumptions and so on Hey, yeah, thanks very much for that advice. Um, I think, yeah, the other question really is, like, I really enjoyed the kind of not trip down memory lane so much for me, but the trip back in time and looking at where we've come from in this area of force assessment in sprinting. What do you think kind of the next big breakthrough might be? Or, yeah, what do you think in 10 years or 20 years' time could be the next step? So... If you'd asked me that question five years ago, I would have said a fully equipped uh, <laughs> track with first place. Yeah. Well, that's done. Uh, now, to me, the next step is definitely um, um, joining external measurements to internal measurements. And uh, so <clears throat> the external measurements today, basically you have these tracks, you have these video cameras, what else can you do? Uh, so the next improvement will be um, inside the muscle, inside the muscle tendon units, or maybe not, not inside, but at least, you know, around the muscles. And I, this, this first step done by uh, Talent Group is, is huge. Uh, you know, um, EMG went from surface EMG to intramuscular EMG, and there's gonna be some more steps. So that's where uh, muscle tension and muscle force output is going, in my opinion. And there's, you know, technically speaking, uh, there's nothing absolutely not feasible. So, but for, of course, it's not going to be next year. I understand that. But it's going to be internal because external is, is, um, is pretty good now. Yeah, definitely. And I think 
a little opportunity for a plug there, but um, I was speaking to Stephen Lindley from Delsis yesterday, who's going to be doing their lecture, and he was talking as well about kind of the next steps in electromyography and some of the things he's going to talk about with where that can go in the future and even maybe some of the advanced things that people aren't necessarily aware that we can yeah. maybe already do to kind of, yeah, decomposition of the EMG signals. Yes, because on the external side, look, uh, what Archibald Hill was doing one century ago is not very far from what, what we are doing now. I mean, uh, you know, um, processors are, are more powerful, but the overall idea is exactly the same. So yeah. the big step is, 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 is in the muscle now. Yeah, I think just probably one more out of my own curiosity, one last well, question or opportunity, I guess, an opportunity for a bit of myth busting. Are there any misconceptions out there in this area that you think people don't understand or that people do incorrectly that we should maybe try and correct? So um, there's a misconception that, that we ourselves do sometimes for laziness or lack of you know, rigor is the use of power and mechanical power uh, where it's it's... It's been correctly discussed by people like Andrew Vygotsky or other people, but this is not much of a misconception. It's more a misuse of the terms because we all agree it's the change of mechanical energy over time, but we, you know, we call power everything where it should be more carefully called. But I think one very important misconception is the difference between the magnitude of numbers you know, that's you, you see a graph when you see 2000 versus 200, it's this is more important. No, it's not more important to movement. It's a higher magnitude of Newtons, but it doesn't mean it's a higher magnitude of resultant movement in sprinting. You see what I mean? That's a, that's a key misconception because uh, when you move around, you carry your own body weight. So part of that force output is already, so I don't move right now. My body is exerting my body weight as a force just to stand in front of the computer. Do I move? No. So it means the number of Newtons doesn't mean the degree of importance to sports performance. You see what I mean? But this does not apply only to sprinting. It applies to many other sports. Uh, you miss a shot in basketball for just a couple of Newtons. You see what I mean? So... Yeah, that's that's a great uh, point to for coaches and, and people who want to apply science, but even students to focus on. The degree of magnitude doesn't necessarily tell the importance. Have you seen my my? I did that video to have an an you know, we call that um, an absurd argument. You know, I, I I don't move and I just generated hundreds of watts for not moving. You see. So that's that's important. Yeah, and for me, that links perfectly to finish off on back to your quote that you used twice from, I think it was new, was it Einstein? But yeah, the, yeah. not everything that count, not everything that can be counted counts, and not everything that counts that's is we, whatever. Yeah, yeah that quote. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think that sums up pretty much exactly what you so, just said there is choosing the right measures for the right research question and the right purpose really and it's it's exactly summarizing biomechanics because there are some things that we really need to measure 
to know more about human movement. Sometimes we can, great. Sometimes we cannot. And on the other side, there are some things that we can measure. Yes, I can do that. And they are totally useless. <laughs> so we need to be aware of that and not make something important just because we have the device that can measure it. I know it's very frustrating, but. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And I think the last, yeah, last quick question for me is just, you mentioned earlier on about kind of your advice for people's first steps being to reach out and contact people. If anyone does kind of watch this video tomorrow or the day after, if they're not watching live and they've got any questions, is there a best way of getting in touch with you kind of over social media? Yeah, so like any academics in the world, I have my university email and, and I respond to every email I receive. So that's the first step. And, um, and on my website, there's a contact uh, form that you can just fill and, and it falls down to the same email box. So yes, it's very often that I eventually connect with people to further discuss things. So feel free. Um, and if I don't have time to respond, I respond that I don't have time to respond. <laughs> but eventually I, 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 I'm busy enough to be able to respond to, to every, every email. So feel free. Perfect. Thank you. So hopefully you're not about to be inundated with fan mail. Um, but yeah, thanks very much for that. Um, yeah, thanks. And yeah, thanks very much for